So we're in Isaiah 17. We've been in Isaiah since August, if you were counting, and covered every verse in chapters 1 through 12. And as Pastor Kevin mentioned a couple weeks ago, we're going to begin to pick up speed as you have the context and hopefully the knowledge you need to handle some of these passages in your own personal study. And when we come to Isaiah 17 this morning, Isaiah 13 through 23 all function the same way in Isaiah. There's these pronouncements, prophetic announcements, oracles against different nations who have sinned foretelling of the coming judgment of God. And Isaiah 17 is one of these in particular. So if you can handle Isaiah 17, you can handle the rest. What you're going to see is a pronouncement of judgment against Syria. So the capital of Syria, Damascus, is used as part for the whole of the whole country. And Ephraim is mentioned, which is the northern kingdom of Israel. And we're going to be like accident investigators. Where did it go off tracks for them? And why is God's judgment coming on them? And then we can apply what we can learn and see the God's truth to them and how we apply it in our own day. So Isaiah 17, I'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 14. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aroer are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean, and it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears, and as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim, gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away. In a day of grief and incurable pain, ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them. And they will flee far away, chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind, 
and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror before morning. They are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would give us your wisdom as we see your truth in this passage, that we together would walk in your ways, worship and obey you, and follow you all because of the wonder of the power of grace in our lives, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There is going to be a spectacle in San Marcos coming this Saturday. It is something called the Texas Water Safari. Has anybody heard of this? Texas Water Safari. Nobody's heard of it. Okay. I'll tell you about it. Okay, we got one. The Texas Water Safari. It is a 260-mile boat race from San Marcos to the Gulf of Mexico. It is billed as the toughest boat race in the world. And it's happening starting next Saturday. And the winners will take about 30 hours to transverse both the San Marcos River and the Guadalupe River from San Marcos all the way outside of Corpus Christi where the finish line is. The winners will do it in 30 hours. They will not sleep. They will just keep rowing. And when you think about the Christian life, you know, some people say, well, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. No, marathons are too easy. The Christian life, well, think about it. It's only 26.2 miles. It's probably flat, maybe a few hills. It's on a road. Think how unpredictable the river is. You know, last year with Well, with all the rain we've been having, praise God for that. You know, the river's going to be up, and it's just going to carry the contestants down, you know. It'd be a good year to do it if you're thinking about rowing 260 miles from San Marcos to Corpus Christi. But last year, about half the teams dropped out. Can you imagine how often, well, one, how hot it was. It's not even hot yet. How hot it was. And then they were dragging their boats where the river was low, portaging, trying to get down the river, dragging it over all that gravel. So about half of the teams ended up dropping out and giving up. And, you know, when you drop out of a race, you get a DNF, did not finish. When you look at the results, you get DNF, did not finish. And when we think about the Christian life not being a marathon, It's more like the Texas water safari, when you think about that. I have a vested interest, and so do you, that all of us in this boat here at Trinity go all the way to the finish line. Go all the way to the finish line. And it is the beauty of God's grace that He equips us and gives us strength to go all the way to the end. And there are some characteristics, because really, if you think about the nation of Israel, and at this time, they're split into two. Ephraim, Israel, the northern kingdom, and then Judah, the southern kingdom. If you think about it, God revealed himself in miraculous, awesome ways in the history of Israel, yet they forgot. 
they did not endure to the very end and are subject to God's judgment. So as we think about it, and really this applies to all of us, you know, some of us, believe it or not, are closer to the finish line than others. I know you're denying it, but it's true. Some of you, maybe you graduated from high school and you're headed off to Woke University. <laughs> and I've, I've heard it's, it's still a good school. But the problem is, will your faith be eroded? Every day in our world, there is celebration of that which God forbids. And so are we going to let our culture influence us so we don't reach the finish line? The very nature of faith, because it's dependent upon God, the very nature of faith goes all the way to the end. It perseveres because it's dependent upon God, not us. And so whether you're going to Woke University and they're going to try to erode your faith, whether you're close to the finish line and you're bringing it home, as a pastor... I want us all in this boat here at Trinity to reach that finish line. To reach that finish line. Well, you're going to need some characteristics, some qualities that are talked about in this passage regarding your faith. You need a certain faith to go all the way to the end. And the first thing, and there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along, the first thing you're going to need is a reverence to your faith, a reverence. And you'll see this here in the opening few verses of chapter 17. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city. So you can kind of imagine God is announcing here that his judgment is coming. So think of Syria towards the northeast of where Israel was. And the Assyrians, so these are two different people, Syrian, Assyrian. The Assyrian Empire is rising. And what are they going to do? They're going to invade to the southwest, and Syria is there, and the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim. And what God does, is he announces ahead of time that Damascus, this beautiful place, wonderful cosmopolitan city in the ancient world, is going to be a heap of ruins. And there will be, the, the flocks will make their home there, at the end of verse 2, none will make them afraid because all the people are going to be gone. It's going to return to wildness instead of civilization. And that goes, too, for the northern kingdom, for Israel. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim. And what we find out there in verse 3, the remnant of Syria, this glorious country, will be like the glory of the children of Israel. God declares it. And notice this in verse 4, in that day the glory of Jacob will be brought low. Reverence is about this humility that we're called to in our faith to understand that great truth. You know, when I was growing up, people would have a t-shirt occasionally and, and it, would, it would say, there is a God, and then underneath, and you are not him. This is reverence. Understanding that God is other than we are. And you need that reverence in your life to understand that God's great and high end and purpose is not to glorify you. 
not to do what you want, but that we would do what he wants, that we would give him all the glory because he is that awesome and great. And it takes reverence, and you can understand reverence as this humility that we have in our relationship with God to where we direct to him the right reverence, respect, and awe, and fear, not that I'm afraid but the fear is the reverence and awe that we give to God because of his power and how he keeps his promises. So we see that they lost that. As we put on our accident investigator hats, so to speak, we see that they lost that. There is a need for them to be, verse 4, brought low because they have not given the glory to God and reverence themselves before him. Verses 5 and 6 are again a picture of the desolation and scarcity that happens when we don't have this reverence for God, this unleashed desire to see him glorified. And it's about a reaper who, there's just a picture of it, goes through and harvests, but then there's this remainder, the gleanings, and it could be the edges of a field, or the gleanings are one or two olives or pieces of fruit left high in the tree out of reach. And what God's communicating here is that because he has not been given the reverence and the respect that he is due, because of that, he's going to judge them and bring desolation to them. And since we're sort of removed from an agrarian society, you can kind of think of verses 5 and 6. That's like when you mow your lawn. I know this never happens to me. Maybe it happens to you. You mow your lawn, and there's sort of those little tufts. Looks like somebody gave it a bad haircut. Sort of the leftover tufts. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, look, if you don't give me the glory and the reverence that is due to me, if you are not humbled I will come through with that judgment in this great civilization and the fortress of Ephraim is going to be demolished and will only be left as a few tufts of the grass. So reverence is that first quality we need in our faith as we understand something of who God is, who the scripture reveals that he is and come to not just accept, but come to apprehend the greatness of who God is, we bring our reverence to him. In 2014, a pastor, he was a, a pastor for 20 years, undertook an experiment. He undertook an experiment. And the experiment was that he was going to assume an atheistic identity, basically. He was going to temporarily suspend his Christian beliefs and live a year without God. He was going to live a year without God. That's what he did. And, you know, he popularized it. He wrote a book. He made a blog. You know how people are. And so he did all this. And unfortunately, at the end of the year, he had so learned this behavior, he ended up disavowing the faith. He disavowed Christ. And everything that he believed and cherished during that 20 years of being a pastor, 
He undid, so to speak, or it was undone in that one year of living without God. And I tell you that story to say that just undertaking such an experiment is an absolute exercise in irreverence and disrespect to God Almighty. Just that someone would do that shows a lack of reverence for who God is and all that He commanded us to do. And we don't often talk a lot about reverence and humility in our day. And what you commonly see with people is we try to bring God down to our level. And what we do is we lift up human innovation and achievement at the same time. And this sort of movement is the exact recipe that erodes biblical faith and trust in who God is. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to carry with you this reverence, respect, and honor, and glory towards God and all that He has done for us in Christ. To have that and to remember not to locate reverence and respect for God in external practices only. See, commonly what we do is we have our preferences for I don't know, maybe how people should dress at church or something like that. And we somehow equate the, this outward conformity with reverence for God. But biblically, we know reverence for God, that's a heart issue, not just external conformity. And so let us not fall into the same trap as that New Testament group of people who did all the things outwardly correctly, but missed who Christ is. Who am I talking about? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the most religious people of the day. If you looked at them from an outward perspective, you would say, wow, these people are really reverent. They have it going on. But that reverence never made it into their heart. They were not humble about all that God had done for them. And so as we think about having faith for a lifetime, faith that lasts all the way to the end, we must have this reverence that rejects these experiments, rejects uh, you know, the experiment of living a year without God, and rejects anything that doesn't direct all the glory and worship uh, to God. Incidentally, sometimes people talk about deconversion. Have you heard somebody talk about deconversion. You know, we might think, uh, when I was reading about this pastor, uh, the language used was deconversion. And I want to tell you, do not use that language, because the very nature of salvation, salvation depends more on God than on us. The very nature of conversion, that faith and repentance that happens as a result of the work of the Spirit regenerating us so that we can turn to Christ and trust in Him, because that doesn't depend on us, we cannot undo it in our own power. Do you follow me? So we don't talk about deconverting because there's no such thing as deconverting. 
we would have to understand that the spiritual nature of conversion is best articulated for us in the parable of the soils. And what do you have there? You have four different types of soil. You have four different outcomes, spiritual outcomes. This is in Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, the parable of the soils. And so this is business as usual. It doesn't always work out. That is true. But the very nature of true conversion, incidentally, there's no other kind, true conversion, true faith, all the way to the end, all the way to the finish line, because it depends more on God than on us. So reverence is the first feature that we have, this humility that causes us to direct all worship to God. The other thing that we're going to need if we're going to reach the finish line is we're going to need to repent. This is in verses 7 and 8. Repentance. Notice the change that happens here in the gaze or the looking of the man that's depicted. Verse 7, in that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. Now, this is significant. Let's delve into this for a moment. The title that's used for God here is maker. So, what's happening here is this is the definition of the right creature-creator distinction. God is the creator. He gets to say how things go. We are the creature. We go along with it. He is the potter. We're the clay, Isaiah would later uh, show us this. But in that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. This is repentance because where was he looking previously? That's in verse 8. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look at what his fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. And something you got to take away here in verse 8 is all the references to idolatry are plural. They're, they're plural because there are many competitors for this reverence that is due to God alone. So we're told here, I mean, this is encouraging. Repentance is a turning away from our sin to God. And what happens here is the gaze, the look of the man is no longer at the altars, the work of his hands, the asherim, and just give you a quick Hebrew lesson. I am is the plural. So Asherim were these poles that were constructed. Even though it's anachronistic, we could say they're kind of like totem poles that were constructed for the purposes of idolatry. Or the altars, plural, of incense. And the reality is we struggle a lot with idolatry because we can define idolatry as not just little statues that people worship, but anything which takes away worship, reverence, dedication, and obedience to God. Anything that competes for our loyalty with God, that is idolatry. I said it a few weeks ago, everybody worships on Sunday morning. It's just some worship in churches. Whatever distracts us from giving all dedication and loyalty to God is an idol in our life. John Calvin, the theologian, said that our, the human heart is a foundry of idols. 
It's a factory for making idols. That's our human heart. And so we must repent. We must turn away from looking for life satisfaction, significance, purpose, from looking to other things and turn and look to God and God alone for life, satisfaction, significance, and purpose. All of this is bound up in this imagery of a man looking to his maker, the Holy One of Israel. That's one of Isaiah's favorite titles for God, reminding us of the vision he sees in Isaiah 6 where God is called holy to the superlative. He is totally other than us. And what we have here is repentance happening. Repentance is turning away from our sin to God and endeavoring after. Obedience to Him through the strength of the gospel and the good news message that He has declared to us in Christ. And so, so far, what we're talking about, we're all in the boat. We're all in the boat going down the river. And we want to reach the finish line. We don't want... DNF did not finish. We don't want to bring shame on the name of Christ because we believed in who he was and then we walked away from that. We'll need reverence. We'll need repentance. And the third thing here, we'll need to remember. We'll need to remember. One of the errors of Israel is they forgot. They forgot all that God has done for them. Likewise, we take for granted God's work of providence and provision in our life. Look at verse 10. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. How often you and I can go about our business and we have spiritually forgotten all that God has done for us in Christ, all that he has provided for us. We can, this can be drowned out with all the, good, all the bad news that's out in our, in our world. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, this spiritual forgetfulness is a problem mentioned right at the outset of Isaiah, Isaiah 1, 2, and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Okay, what's the problem? How did, how did they re- rebel? Verse 3 of Isaiah 1. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They have forgotten the wonder of who God is and all that he has done for them in rescuing and providing for them. So back to Isaiah 17, 10. In or, if, if their problem is that they have forgotten, what do we need to do? We need to remember. We need to remember. And instead of remembering, there's two vain worthless solutions that they try to employ here. And the first one is seen in verse 10. So they've forgotten that's the problem. But instead of remembering, what do they, what do, they do? Well, this is a failed solution of human effort. They try to correct their own problem. Look at the end of verse 10. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger... Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them. Okay, that's pretty good. Uh, You know, I'm not the greatest 
green thumb type person. I know some of you have wonderful gardens, but listen, your garden isn't that good. The day you plant it, you're not causing it to grow. And this is a testimony that we as human beings are not going to innovate ourselves or utilize technology somehow to get out of the dilemma that we're in with a holy God that sinners like us cannot correct our own situation enough to reconcile with God. That's the beauty of the gospel. He has done it for us. That's the good news. But you see that first failed solution is through human effort and ingenuity trying to correct But what's going to happen? Look at the end of verse 11. The harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. And so there's another human solution that's tried here, and it's in verses 12 through 13. And this is really the attempted solution of human alliances. And of course, what happened in the ancient day is Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, because they bordered the rising Assyrian power tried to join forces to resist the Assyrians, and they tried to coerce the southern kingdom in this. And the idea here in verses 12 and 13, there can be all this calamitous activity of the nations. It's portrayed as thunder of many people, the roar of the nations like the roaring of mighty waters. Have you ever stood next to a waterfall and the sound of the water rushing That's not going to work. The underlying issue in Isaiah is one of trust. Will they trust in this amazing, powerful God to deliver them? Or will they try to form human alliances or through human effort get out of this dilemma that they're in? And so the solution is not these vain human efforts. And how does the alliances end? Verse 13 like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. It just passes away. I mean, we cannot get through a week without hearing about some other country pulling some kind of shenanigans or doing something to try to disrupt our country. And we remember as we look at a passage like this that those alliances, that's not where life is found and that we cannot, through human effort, get ourselves out of this situation. Instead, the solution is to remember. And we see a glimmer of hope here at the end of verse 14. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. And it is a, really, if we read between the lines there, it's a casting ourselves on God in dependence on Him, understanding that those who conquer will be judged by God with the same judgment rendered to Israel. There's just a glimmer of hope there. But I do want to ask you, and I want to end with this, where do you spend your time remembering? God has given us minds to remember. The, the memory that we have, it's a, it's a wonderful gift. How are you investing it? How are you spending it? Many people spend their remembering Remembering insults, remembering grievances, remembering sin done against them, remembering problems, remembering their own failures, remembering their own sin. Do we spend our time remembering that? Because what we're called to do here is to remember this great 
and awesome God who has provided everything needful for us for a life of godliness. He who provided the Savior for us that we would reach the finish line and that we would do it together. You know, at the front of this table, you might not be able to see it, but when you come up to communion, what, what's etched on the front of this table? This do in remembrance of me. Why is that? Because when we remember how our Savior lived, died, rose again, and ascended in power when we remember that he will come again to fix everything wrong and broken in this world. There's power in what you remember. And when we spend our memories, so to speak, remembering the wonder of God's grace, remembering how he loves us in Christ, we are carried along. We are carried along by the current of the river. And we will reach the finish line together. Think about it this year, the Texas Water Safari. As I said, oh, it'd be, it'd be my year to do it. Because I'd just get in the boat and I'd be carried along. So it is in our Christian life. He carries us along by his power that we would reach the finish line together. Faith for a lifetime. You gotta have three things that were lacking with the Syrians and Ephraim. A reverence for God, humbly honoring Him in all that we do as we glorify Him. Repentance, because indeed we are sinners, and we must return to the God of our salvation. And then remembering, remembering His grace to you that carries you along in the race of life, that indeed we would triumphantly reach the finish line, with a faith that lasts all the way to the end. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you indeed that you have made every provision for us, that we as your people would not give up, that we as a people would not have our faith eroded by the current culture and currents of this world, but indeed that we would have faith for a lifetime all the way to the end and that we would give you all the glory for it. We pray wherever we lack reverence, wherever we lack humility and worship, wherever we lack repentance, wherever we lack remembering your gracious kindness and love towards us, help us in that area that we together as a church would be known to have a persevering and enduring faith all the way to the end, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.